All right, good morning, guys. Uh, my name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and we are continuing our series called Relate. And this morning, we're going to continue in John 15. So grab your Bibles. Let's flip over to John 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, no big deal. Go ahead and grab one off the chairs around you. And in our Bibles, you're going to be going over to page 902, page 902 to John chapter 15. We started looking at this passage last week, uh, and we're talking about friendship. A friendship is uh, a challenging topic for us and timely for our culture because we don't do friendship well as a culture. We really don't. Um, we do acquaintanceship well. We, we do hanging out with people okay, um, but the reality is we don't do friendship well. And this isn't just a, a church issue. This isn't just like, hey, from the Bible, this is important. It is. It's a, it's a public health issue. Like, our culture has recognized that it has a systemic problem that's actually affecting um, uh, the health of our citizens, right? It's a public health issue. In fact, isolation and loneliness are now considered the greatest public health issues. Um, that, that, that lives are being shortened and the quality of life is being reduced because of the effects of isolation and loneliness. It is, it is considered to be as great of a long-term indicator of health risks as, as daily smoking cigarettes. Isolation and loneliness are having a direct and powerful impact on the people of our cultures. There's something in the way we do life as Americans that devalues friendships and increases isolation. We have ever-increasing circles of virtual influence and friendship and ever-decreasing circles of actual human interaction, relationship, and friendship. And this isn't because we don't like friendship. It's because we have values that compete with it. We overvalue certain values and undervalue others, right? So, so we love our independence, and we love our affluence, and we love our success more than we love people. And we see this reflected even as we go through our stages of life, right? That each stage of life tends to be increasingly isolating, right? When you get married, it's, it's isolating. In fact, you'll have some people even give advice, which basically says, hey, when you get married, man, leave all your friends behind because you got somebody new. You got to focus on them. You got to move into friendship with them. Leave all your friends behind. And then when you have kids, it's like, well, you definitely can't have friends now because, you know, they've, they've got to do soccer and piano and, and tutoring and, and all of the other things that are going on. And, and, and as you start your career and, and start your earning arc, man, it's important that you invest all of your energy and your time into your career. And, and what ends up happening is the circle of friendship shrinks. The circle of genuine relationships shrinks. Um, and as a result, friendship is seen as temporary. Friendship love is the most fragile love in our culture. It is the most transient and passing. We have a high value on, on certain loves. We have a high value on romantic love. Right? Our culture loves romantic love, and our culture loves family love. Um, but friendship love is disposable. Friends come, friends go, and here's the thing. We're poorer for it. We live in bigger houses, our kids have more activities, we drive nice cars, and we are in the process decreasing both the length and the quality of our lives. And instead of finding our needs met in deep friendships, we're uh, instead finding other ways of 
satisfying those needs and the restlessness. We don't even know how to identify the loneliness of our souls. We just know uh, something doesn't feel right. Something is anxious or, or restless or I don't even know how to name it, right? It's like, what are you feeling? I'm not sure. Well, it's loneliness, right? Loneliness feeds the, the, the unhealth of our culture, right? Last week, we talked about the, the way addiction is um, skyrocketing in our culture, whether it is to to prescription drugs or, or to recreational drugs or um, even to pornography and things like that. And, and, and that provocative quote, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is human connection. Addictions thrive in isolation. Addictions thrive in environments of loneliness and isolation. And, and that's why, as a culture, we are um, racked with addictions. So you guys, here's the thing. Our, the greatest treasure in life is love. I mean, that's not just a, a song lyric or a, a nice thing to put on a mug. I mean, it is for real. We know that. The greatest treasure in life is the experience of love. And, and the most valuable thing in life are friendships. And in many ways, the most valuable form of human love is friendship. Because here's the thing, as Christians, we experience the transcendent love of God in the very flesh and blood love of friends. That's how we grow in our awareness and our experience of the love of God. It is in friendship. It is in human relationships of loving and being loved that, that we get a concept and a greater understanding of the love of God, which means we need to grow in our friendships. We need to grow in our friendships, both in, in, in the, the number, but also in the quality. And, and we don't do it very well, so this morning we're going to be looking at, at some principles that come together to help form real friendship. So we're going to identify what is and what isn't. So let's take a look at our passage. We're looking at John 15, verses 9 through 17. We're going to start in verse 9. Jesus is speaking. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father and have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should, be, should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The word of the Lord. All right, last week um, I made a case for the importance of friendship. We dug into this passage, and, and I unpacked kind of a, a theological construct, like the theology of friendship, why friendship is important. When we see friendship as really the most passing and transient of loves, the most disposable of loves, Scripture actually indicates that it is um, the highest form of human love, right? It, it shouldn't really be surprising to us. In the kingdom of God, often what is seen as the least is, is worth the most, right? The inverted values of the kingdom. The love we see as most disposable is, in fact, the most eternal and the most powerful, transcendent experience 
of the presence of God, the most enduring, right? And we talked about this last week. Marriages, romantic love, it's real, it's important, it's vital, but it's not eternal, right? Jesus said in, in the coming kingdom, there will be neither marriage nor giving in marriage. Marriages are, 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 are transient, if you want to put it that way. They're not eternal in nature. They're going to be swallowed up by a greater love. Family love, as important as it is, and it is important, will be swallowed up by a greater love. When we come into the kingdom, we're not going to be defined by who our earthly father or earthly brother or or, or earthly mother was. We're going to be defined by a new community of faith. So the family love is going to be swallowed up by a greater love, the love of friendship the love of community, the love of being in a, a community that is, that is being undone by the love of God and remade by that love with one another. So it's not that these loves go away. They're, they're swallowed up by a greater love, and that greater love is friendship. It's friendship. And we saw this in verses 12 and 13 as we unpacked that, and I just want to just hit this again quickly. It said in verses 12 and 13, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He's speaking there of agape love, God's love, self-giving love, right? This is my commandment. I have loved you with a self-giving love. I want you to learn how to love one another in a self-giving love. And then he says this in verse 13, for greater love, greater agape, greater self-giving love has no one than this, than that they lay down their life for their friends for those that they love like friends. It's phileo love. It's a, it's a different Greek word that means love, but what he's saying is the greatest experience and greatest expression of self-giving love is found in friendship. So in other words, if, if you want to know more about the love of God, you need to find out more about the love of people. If you want to experience God's love more deeply in your life, it's not simply getting more theology into your head. It's moving in relationship, deep and real relationship with other people who are going to help you experience love. I used to read verses 12 and 13 as as kind of a a statement of fact, that Jesus was describing something that was just happened to be real. You know what I'm saying? Like, Like the highest form of love is when someone is given the opportunity to die for someone else and they do it. And of course, he's speaking of himself because he was getting ready to go die for the disciples. He was going to go lay down his life for their good, die in their place, Um, having lived the life they should have lived. He was going to die the death they deserved to die so that they could be forgiven and and have a new relationship with God, right? And he was speaking of himself and, and other noble martyrs who would follow, people who would have that unique opportunity of actually dying in somebody's place. And we know there have been those people, people that have, have been martyrs, people that have laid down their life and, and actually died for other people. The challenge is this. I don't think Jesus is talking just about himself and a few other noble martyrs. I don't think he's making a statement about something some people are supposed to do sometimes. I think he's describing what we're all supposed to be doing all the time. That he's not talking about a single heroic act that occasionally happens. He's talking about a pattern of life. In essence, what he's saying is, if you're going to grow in your experience of the love of God, it's going to come through the pattern of learning to lay down your life for friends. 
for people that you are deeply in love with on a friendship level. You have friendship love for them, and you're learning how to lay down your life for them. As you lay down your life for your friends, you will not only express, but you will come to experience love of God more deeply and more profoundly than you have, because there is no greater expression of agape love than friendship love. In essence, what he's saying is, I'm telling you to love. That's my command, but I'm also telling you how to love. That's the means. I'm going to tell you what I want you to do, and I'm going to tell you how to do it. And if we're going to express and experience God's love, we're going to have to grow in friendship love, which means we need to kind of know what it is. We need to know it when we see it, and we need to know the counterfeits that are active in our lives, because we're not good at friendship. We're just not. As a culture, as a people, we are not good at friendships, and much of what we call friendship is not friendship. It's not what the Bible calls friendship love, phileo love. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of dig in because Jesus here is is not just telling us what to do. He's modeling it for us. So I want to take a look at at what Jesus says about friendship and take a look and and see what principles we can derive uh, so that help us understand friendship in our own lives. All right, so verse 14, Jesus goes on from, from that kind of big theological provocative statement about love. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Well, that's an interesting invitation to friendship, right? Kind of a strange friendship. It doesn't really sound like friendship. You're like, I have friends like that. I'll be your friend as long as you do what I tell you to do, right? I'll command, you obey, and we'll be friends, right? That doesn't sound like friendship. How in the world is Jesus offering friendship when when basically what he's saying is you need to do what I command? Well, here's the thing, you guys. Friendship requires mutual submission. Friendship, true friendship, requires mutual submission. You're like, yeah, Steve, this doesn't sound very mutual because what Jesus is saying is if you want to be my friend, you have to do what I command you. That is true, Um, but he's saying that because he has already submitted himself to us. (laughs) Unlike us, he's actually starting from a place of submission, right? We have to be called to it. It's not our natural posture. It is not the natural place our heart goes. Jesus is already there, right? Now, that doesn't mean he submits to our, our selfish, sinful desires, It doesn't mean he's going to give us whatever we ask for, that we can demand anything of Jesus and and he's just going to do it or or he's going to give it, right? That's not what that means. It means that he has submitted himself not to our desires but to our needs. That's why he came to earth. He came to earth to redeem and restore that which was lost and had been broken. But to redeem and restore meant he was going to have to do it through self-sacrifice. He was on a mission of love to lay down his life for our needs. He was, in a sense, leading the way in friendship because he was submitting himself to our death. That we might, in him, have life. He gave his life in submission to our need. And now what he's saying is, look, if you want to be my friend, you need to submit to me. You, you need to yield to me. Now, as far as offers go, that's a pretty good one, right? There are very few people you can entrust with complete submission. Jesus is one of them. In fact, the only one, <laughs> right? Like, like when he's like, give it all to me, yield it all to me, surrender it all to me, there's no threat there. 
Because there's nothing that you'll yield to Christ that he does not use for his glory and your good. Right? There's nothing that you will surrender. Your, your family, your ambitions, your career, your hopes. There's nothing that you can lay before God, before Jesus, in submission that he is not going to use for his glory and for your good. And so there is, in a sense, just a tremendous blessing in that, that we even have the opportunity to do this, right? That, that, that Jesus paid the price so that we could submit it all to him so that he could redeem it and restore it. This is unique, you guys, because Jesus loves us with a perfect love, and and his every desire is for the expression of God's glory and for the experience of our joy and our good. But there is a principle here that we see plays out powerfully in, in friendships, and it's this, that love requires submission. Genuine friendship love requires submission. I need to submit my self-centered desires and put you first. I I have to put your desires, your needs, your happiness, your joy above my own. To lay down our desires, our selfish ambitions, our need to, to put our own comfort and our own pleasure first We need to lay these things down. We need to submit these things because at the heart of true friendship is a desire not to be blessed, but to bless. And when you have two people that are in a a friendship of mutual submission, each one is living for the good of the other. Each one is learning to put the other first. Each one is learning to put their needs, their desires first. You guys, that's at the heart of genuine friendship. That's very different than most of our friendships. That's very different than how most of us experience friendship, right? For comparison, at the very beginning of verse 15, Jesus says this, No longer do I call you servants. No longer do I call you servants. All right, think about what a servant is. A servant is somebody who submits to your will, who does what you want, who serves you in the ways you want to be served, right? A servant lives to meet your needs. A servant lives to satisfy your desires. And the reality is most of us, if we're honest, are more interested in having servants than friends. We want people around us who are living to meet our needs, to make us happy, to to entertain us, to distract us, to make us laugh, to to help us enjoy what we want to enjoy, right? Most of our friends are servants, not friends, right? They, they, we add them to our life to enrich our life because we like what they bring. And it makes it all about my expectations and all about my relational desires. And when a friend no longer adds value, I move on. When a friend no longer is meeting my need in in the way somebody else could, I devalue their place in my life. They get less of my time, less of my attention, because somebody else has taken their place. Friendship's disposable. Friendship's exchangeable. And as a result, when I find a better servant, I replace them, because Servants are disposable and expendable. You know why? Because I don't really know a servant. I don't really value a servant. I just like what they do for me. Right? So think about it, you guys. When we have friends 
And it's not that there's not some mutual form of affection, right? We know how to sanctify this so that we're not ugly and demanding because nobody's going to just be our slave, right? So, so we've, you know, we learn how to do this thing, but, but when we just value people for what they do for us, you know, you make me laugh, or, or uh, you enjoy what I enjoy, and we have fun doing it together, or, or sometimes you need me. Some of us are addicted to fixing people, or mentoring people, or helping people, and it makes us feel important, so we like to have people around that, that are a little bit more needy and, and grateful, <laughs> right? So that, so that we can meet their needs and they can tell us how great we are or, or we can fix them and, and it makes us feel important, right? We like to have friends that people around us who echo our views and echo our hurts, right? Sometimes our circle of friends aren't friends at all. They're simply people that have the same bitternesses that we have. They share the same hurts that we have. We like to get around them and, and, and complain because they have an echoing complaint, and that makes us feel valid in our complaint. That makes us feel more important in our hurt. And really all they're doing is echoing and magnifying our bitterness. And as a result, we end up with a self-centered perversion of friendship. And we leave them when they stop being funny. And we distance them when they stop flattering us. And we resent them when they stop needing us. And we get jealous of them when they actually start having other friends. And now it's competition because we thought we were the one uh, that was going to meet that need. And in the end, what we're saying is, I value you insofar as you enrich me. That's a servant, that's not a friend. See, to submit. To have mutual submission requires friendship, not servanthood. It requires us to listen and to know the people we're in relationship with, not simply hang around them and use their presence for personal pleasure or distraction. It requires us to listen, to learn, and be responsive. It requires us to take the position, ironically, of a servant. If we're going to be a good friend, we need to become a servant. What does a servant do? A servant pays attention. What do you need? When do you need it? How can I make you happy? What can I do to enrich you or to bless you or to help you? You're like, that doesn't sound very fun. Yeah, but it sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus who became the servant, the one who said the least in the kingdom shall be the greatest, the inverted values of the kingdom of God. For us to be friends, we need to learn to be comfortable being servants paying attention to others, meeting their needs, being a blessing to them, not seeking to have my need for friendship met first, but learning how to meet their need for friendship first. Asking the questions, how can I be a blessing to you instead of just showing up and asking the question, how can you be a blessing to me? Friendship, it requires us to know people, value people, lay down our lives for people and put other people first. requires submission. But friendship isn't all about serving. It's also about mutual knowing. Verse 15, Jesus says this, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Friendship requires vulnerability. It requires vulnerability. All right. So just about this verse, it's, it's absolutely insane that Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, 
would elevate us to the status of friend. Right? When he says, no longer do I call you servant, I call you friend. You guys, it would be a tremendous privilege to be a servant in the house of God. <laughs> right? I mean, talk about an honor to actually be a servant in the house of the royal king, the, the, the source of all goodness and power, of omnipotent power and, and incredible beauty, the, the source of all that is good and life-giving. To be a servant in that house would be a tremendous honor. And Jesus is saying, you're not my servant. I call you friend. It's a tremendous honor. And then he says, you know how you know you're my friend? Because I tell you things that other people don't know. You want to know how you're my friend? I'm going to let you into my inner world. Everything that the Father has told me, I will tell you. That secret place of intimate relationship between me and my Father, I'm inviting you into that place. I'm allowing you to know me. I'm allowing you to see me. I am giving you access to a, a part of me, a place in me that, that most people don't get. I am inviting you in because real friendship requires vulnerability. One of the most compelling friendships in the whole Bible is in the Old Testament between Jonathan and David. Uh, Jonathan and David are, are, you know, King David is is one of the greatest kings of of Israel's history. And he was the second king of Israel. The first king was a guy named Saul. And Saul was not a very good king. Saul, while he was very attractive and and, and seemed like a man's man and and seemed like he was going to be a great king, ended up really kind of not doing well. And Saul had a son named Jonathan. And while Saul's kingdom is kind of on the decline, while his kingship is suffering, his reputation is suffering, and people are are, are, are suffering. Um, Jonathan is a warrior in his army. And then this little guy named David shows up one day at a battle. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story of David and Goliath. Um, David was a shepherd boy, and, and he had spent his life protecting the sheep, and he had gotten really good with his sling and with his staff, and he had demonstrated tremendous courage in protecting his father's flocks. And, and he came to the, the battlefield of the nation of Israel to bring lunch to his older brothers who were part of the army. And all the army was cowering and hiding from the Philistines because the Philistines had um, a, a champion, a guy named Goliath who was just a monster. And, and they were basically saying, look, why are we going to war? Let's have our champions fight. And Goliath would come forward and say, I am the champion of the Philistines. Where is the champion of the Israelites? Is there nobody here to battle me? And nobody would go and battle him. And David looked at this and was like, we're the, we're the armies of the living God, right? God's on our side, right? And you know the story. So, so David went out into battle with a sling, right, against Goliath. And Goliath laughed at him and, and, and then got nailed in the head by a rock. And, and it knocked him out. And, and David went and cut off his head. And it's pretty gory. And, and David becomes the hero of that moment in history. And then Saul's like, who is this guy, right? Saul's like, where'd this little guy come from? And who's his family? And what's this all about? And so this is, I want to read just a little bit out of um, 1 Samuel chapter 18. And this is right after Saul gets done questioning David. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, remember Jonathan is Saul's son, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. 
And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him, that is David, that day and would not let him return to his father's house. He, he made him part of the, the king's household. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. It's an incredible description of this friendship that emerged as Jonathan and David saw each other and started spending time together. Now, here's something that I find fairly interesting. If you were to Google David and Jonathan and the word love, you're going to find all kinds of articles basically arguing that, that David and Jonathan were a gay couple. Um, the, the, the YouTube scholars, you know, the ones with all the learning, make this argument because clearly two guys can't have this kind of intimate love without it being erotic love. All right, as is often the case, what we say about others often says more about us than the people we're describing. The fact that when we see two men sharing intimate love, we have to assume it's erotic love tells us how little we know of genuine friendship love. These guys loved each other. Their friendship spanned their entire life. When Jonathan was finally killed in battle the same day Saul was, when David heard about it, he, he, he wept and he mourned. And he said, I loved Jonathan with a love that was greater than the love that I had for my wives. Now, David had a lot of wives. That was one of his weaknesses. He had a lot of wives and a lot of concubines, and he just had that going, right? And what he's saying is, I had a love that was greater than the erotic love, right? Erotic, romantic love is not the highest form of human love. He says, I experienced a love with Jonathan a phileo love, a friendship love, an intimate bond that surpassed the intimacy even of romantic love. Jonathan's soul was knit to David's. And in that place, what's really compelling about this image is what Jonathan does. Jonathan takes off his armor and gives it to David. He takes his sword and his bow, and he gives it to David. He takes off his self-protection. He takes off his counterattack. Everything that he would use to, to guard himself, to protect himself, to attack somebody who's attacking him, he takes it all off, and he gives it to David as a gift. It's a gift of intimacy. It's a gift of friendship. It is a gift of vulnerability. Because in doing that, what he's doing is he's saying, I am completely exposed in front of you. You can see my weaknesses. You can see my wounds. You can see my scars. I'm vulnerable. I'm moving into a place where I have no protection. I'm moving into a place that, that fills me with fear, may trigger my shame, but my soul is knit to yours vulnerability. It's a compelling, powerful image 
of letting down your guard, of, of giving your shield and your sword to somebody else, your, your self-protection and your counter-defenses, and saying, I'm going to let you know me. That's scary. But that's the nature of true friendship. If you just have companions, if you just have people you're hanging out with, if you just have people that you like to talk about with, that even if it's just your theology club, you get together and talk theology, or it's your college basketball club, or it's your whatever, right? If, if, if they don't know you, you're not experiencing this friendship. Friendship requires vulnerability. It requires the, the letting down of the guard and inviting people in. It's scary, but it's necessary because when you do this, you know, as well as I do, you're actually opening yourself up to hurt. There's nobody here who hasn't been hurt by somebody close to them. There's nobody here that, that at some point was not hurt when they let their guard down, when they took their shield down, when they put their sword down. Because we're all broken and wounded people. We've hurt people and we've been hurt by people. And sometimes we think the solution is just to keep the armor on. Just keep the armor on and keep the sword in place. And I'll let you get close, but I'm not going to let you get too much closer. I'll let you know about me, but I'm not going to let you know me. I'm going to let you know things that happened in my past, but I'm not going to allow you to actually enter into the woundedness or the reality of those things. And all we do is increase our isolation. And we impoverish ourselves. Because we only come to know more of the love of God by moving out into the reality of the love of people. We cannot grow in our experience of God's love unless we are growing in the experience of the love of friends. So it's scary and it's hard. But if you don't do it, you don't have a friend. You have a servant. If you're not giving them your armor, and laying down your sword. You don't have a friend. And here's the thing. You don't need servants. You don't need fans. You don't need entertainers. You need people around you who know you and love you. You need people around you for whom you don't need to pretend or perform. You don't need to polish your armor. You don't need to keep your sword handy to hide or to impress. You need friends. And that's why true friendship can't be casual. Verse 16. Verse 16, he goes on. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. All right, friendship needs to be um, submitted and it needs to be vulnerable, and that can only take place in the context of commitment. We need committed friendships. You, you cannot move into this place of vulnerability if there's not a level of commitment that protects that vulnerability. So there's a lot of deep theology going on in Jesus' statements, and, and I'm not going to take the time to try and unpack it all here. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is, look, I chose you. You didn't choose me, I chose you. And if you go back and read the Gospels, it is absolutely true, right? Jesus walked along and said, you follow me. You follow me. And you, right? He, he chose them. He didn't, he didn't put out a, want, a help wanted ad and, and see who was going to choose him. He, he chose them. And the reality is, theologically, that is true. If you're a follower of Jesus, he chose you. 
That's just the way it works. He chose you. And there's actually something really, really beautiful and secure about that. Because it means that, that he didn't wait for you to choose him, and he's not afraid you're going to unchoose him. You didn't do anything to earn the choice. You can't do anything to lose it. There's a tremendous amount of security in knowing that God chose you. And that he loves you not because he finds you attractive or funny or entertaining. He loves you because he chooses to. His love is based in a sovereign choice, not in his emotional response. There's a tremendous amount of security. That allows us to be completely vulnerable with God. We have no need to hide anything because he knows it all already and he still chose us. We have no need to pretend because he knows it all. And he's simply inviting us into the absolute radical freedom of integrity, of knowing and being known, loving and being loved. There is security in the choice. We need to learn something here about the nature of friendship. We tend to see friendship as a response to what we find attractive because it's fragile, because it's transient. We don't really look for friends or choose friends. We just kind of find friends. We, we find people who like to do the same things we like to do at the same time we like to do them. We, we kind of find people who are moving in the same direction as us, that we, we don't mind being around them, right? They don't annoy the snot out of us. And as a result, we call them friends. And, and, and we choose to spend more time with them because we like doing the same things they're doing at the same time they're doing it. Right? They take a physical space around us that offers us uh, a certain level of security and joy. And it really is a bonus if they're kind of funny and slightly entertaining. That's not friendship. There's no security in that. Security comes from covenant, and covenant is rooted in choice. As followers of Jesus, we need to pick friends and commit. And not just as long as we find somebody entertaining or amusing or distracting or helpful. We need to commit. If we don't, we got servants. We don't have friends. Right? You won't lay down your life for somebody to whom you only have a passing attraction. You won't lay down your life for somebody that you find mildly entertaining. You won't lay down your life for anyone unless you have committed your life to them. Submission and vulnerability thrive in commitment. And without commitment, they can't. That kind of love only flourishes in the context of commitment. Now, here's the thing, you guys. This is countercultural for us. This is really difficult for us to wrestle with because we tend to think com- of commitment as only be- belonging to romantic and family love, right? So, so romantic love, right? When you, really, when you really love somebody, what do you do? You've got to put a ring on it, right? There's, there's got to be a commitment. There's got to be a movement to say, this is going to be exclusive. This is going to be forever. There's a commitment. And as a culture, we get that right? And when there's a family, right? When you have kids, man, you got to take care of your kids. You got to be committed to your kids. And if you adopt somebody into your family, you got to be just as committed to them, right? There's, we get that. There's a covenant commitment that comes with both romantic love and familial love. We don't get it with friendship. We've lost that, right? When, when David and Jonathan made a covenant together, we're like, what? What kind of covenant did they make? 
right? They're friends. You don't covenant with a friend. You're just friends. No, they, they covenanted together. There was a solemn, binding agreement between them in which they stood before each other and before God and said, I am for you for the rest of my life. And you are for me for the rest of my life. That kind of commitment is completely foreign to our culture. We don't even know how to process it, right? If I were to show up and be like, hey, this is my covenant friend, Jonathan. You'd be like, what, are you you gay? No, I don't mean that. Well, is he like your godfather or something? No, no, not, not talking about that. He's, he's my friend, my covenant friend. Oh, you're weird, right? I mean, we don't even know how to process that. There's no language for that. We have no structure for that in our culture, and we are impoverished as a result. We need to bring back the idea of covenant friendship. We need to recognize that friendship, love, requires the security of commitment to flourish. And if we are afraid to commit, if we refuse to to move into that place where, where we say, I will submit and I will be vulnerable and I will commit, if we refuse to move to that place, we impoverish ourselves and we defraud those that we're with of genuine friendship. So a few things that kind of flow out of this and This is where I get a little messy in my sermon writing and a little disjointed in my thoughts, but these were just things that were flowing through my head as I was writing this and working my way through this. First, when you're picking your friends, you need to pick wisely. Because we're talking about this kind of commitment. We're not talking about something that that you just give and take back. We're not talking about something that you just offer and then um, pull back because, well, that, that that didn't work out, right? Here's the thing, not everyone should be given this kind of access to you. Not everyone should be given this level of commitment from you. You have relational limitations. This shouldn't surprise you. Jesus had relational limitations, and he was the most perfect man to ever walk the face of the earth, right? Jesus had 12 disciples that he chose. Out of the 12, he had three that, that he chose that were going to be, in a sense, kind of his closest inner circle. And outside of the 12, he had 72 who were the broader circle of disciples. And outside of that, they had a couple hundred. They all had different levels of access to him. They all had different levels of expectations from him because he was relationally limited. You can't commit in this way to everyone or no one will get the level of commitment that we're describing. Think about it like driving down the highway. When you're driving down the highway, you've got four lanes all moving in the same direction. There's a lot of people on the road. You can be moving in the same direction with a whole lot of people, right? And, And you don't have a lot of control over who's on the highway, but you have a lot of control over who's in your car. So there are some people that are four lanes over from you that are going the same direction as you, and they need to stay four lanes over. You can love them four lanes over. You know what I'm saying? Like, doesn't mean you don't love them, but you don't necessarily want them right next to you because there may be something going on that, that you don't want them running into your car or, or I don't know, right? I don't know. Just keep them over there. 
right? There are going to be other people that are much closer to you, that are, that are running in the same lane as you, that, that, that you do spend a lot of time with and, and you interact with. Maybe they're people that you work with or, or people that are, you know, in your community group or, and, and you have them in the same lane. That doesn't necessarily mean they need to be in your car, right? You need to pick wisely because you can only put a few people in your car. And the people in your car have the greatest influence on you. The people in your car have the greatest access to you. The people in your car control what's on your radio. The people in your car control the, the, the emotional temperature of your environment. The people in your car know you and hear you and speak into your life. I heard someone say recently, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And that's really true. Because our friends aren't just people that we enjoy spending time with. They are people that influence us. They are people that, that, that uh, have an impact on how we see the world, how we interact with problems, and, and how we grow or don't grow. Our closest friends, and I'm just going to, Christ follower. Your closest friends should be followers of Christ. Because if you're a follower of Christ, it means you believe that the greatest love in the universe has been extended to you in Jesus. And the greatest goal in life is to experience that love more deeply, to be changed by that grace more profoundly, right? That's freedom. Freedom is to have my appetites absolutely freed by love so I can live in the complete radical freedom of of true integrity. I want people around me that are going to help me move in that direction. I want the people who have the greatest access to me and influence over me to, to call that out, to, to increase my understanding and experience the love of God, to increase my, my desire for an experience of the grace of God, to increase the integrity that comes from somebody who isn't bound by shame or driven by guilt. I want people around me that are going to call me to the gospel, call me to the beautiful transcendent message of a God who loves me so radically and freely that I can be radically and freely changed and freed. The people I want close to me are people that are going to call out God's best in me. So how do you know who these people are? How do you know who the people are that should be in your car and have be given that, that level of access? Ask God. Radical thought. Pray pray. Let the Spirit help inform your choices. And if you're looking around going, man, I just don't see anybody right now. I just don't have anybody that I can invite in my car. Ask God, the giver of good gifts, for the gift of friendship. Now beware, God's greatest gifts often come in unlikely packages. God's greatest gifts don't often arrive looking exactly like we thought they'd come. But if you actually submit yourself to God, right? That's that beginning point, coming to Jesus and saying, I submit. I want the good gift you want to give me. And then you're like, Lord, give me the gift of friendship. Give me. The Lord will show you who to invite in your car. He'll show you who you, you can invite into that close connection. When you do it, it doesn't have to be mutual, but it's more rewarding when it is. So in other words, when you're deciding who you're going to commit yourself to, don't ask the first question, are they committed to me? Because that's not the right first question. Don't look around for someone who's committed to you and then decide whether or not you want to be committed to them. 
Once again, you're treating them like a servant, not a, a friend. You are, you are looking for something that's going to enrich you instead of asking the Spirit, who do you want me to enrich? There are going to be times that God calls you to love on someone who's not going to be able to love you back. There are going to be times God calls you to be a friend to somebody who is not going to be a good friend to you because they are limited by their hurt or their past because they're carrying a woundedness or maybe a level of immaturity that limits them and keeps them from actually being able to reciprocate. It doesn't have to be mutual, but it's more rewarding when it is. There are going to be times, and I have friendships like this, and there have been times others have had to love me when I, when I was in that place where, where I'm just loving on people, and I will be their friend. I, <laughs> I will love them. I will drop whatever I need to drop to care for them, to, to be a blessing to them. I will invite them, I will, but they're not reciprocating. But you know what? I'm not doing it primarily for them. I'm doing it primarily for Jesus. And in that place, it's not this prideful thing where it's like, look at me, I get to serve this person. No, it's just me being a friend. Because I believe the Spirit is calling me to be a friend to somebody who in that time, it's not incredibly rewarding for me, but it's what God's calling me to do. Now, I will warn you about something. You can't force someone to receive your love. Like, you can choose to love somebody, that doesn't mean they're going to receive it. There are going to be times when you're like, I believe the Lord's calling me to serve this person, love this person, and they're not going to be receptive to it. You're going to invite them into your car, and they're going to be like, no thanks, I I want a different ride. You need to let them make their choices. Don't manipulate or force them. Don't resent them. And uh, do your best not to second-guess the leading of the Spirit. Those are difficult situations, and God's at work in every situation doing a million things you don't even know He's doing. God's never not at work. So even when you are attempting to extend love to somebody, even if they're not receiving it, God's even there, okay? Expect to be hurt. Expect to be hurt. When you take off your armor and you give somebody your sword, there are times they're going to cut you. Sometimes it's pure clumsiness on their part. They don't even know how to value and treasure and protect the vulnerability you're offering to them, and they wound you in the process expect to be hurt. That is not an excuse to pick back up your, your armor. That is not an excuse to pick back up your sword and say, well, that didn't work. You just need to expect there are times that, that it's going to hurt. And there are going to be times that you don't make wise choices. There are going to be times that you offer vulnerability to people and they don't true, prove to be trustworthy with that vulnerability. It doesn't mean you failed. It doesn't mean you should be defined by that shame. And it doesn't mean that you should stop trying, right? Jesus had 12 disciples. One twelfth of them Turned out to be a really bad choice. A guy named Judas. He was there in John 15. He heard this. He was one of the guys Jesus was extending friendship to and saying, I choose to be your friend. Judas betrays him. Judas uses that vulnerability as, as an excuse, as leverage to try to force Jesus to do something Jesus isn't doing. Right? He's trying to... With the huge betrayal thing, I think Judas was basically trying to force Jesus into political action, an action he wasn't going to take. We want you to be the conquering king hero for Israel, so let's force a political crisis where you have to rise up and actually take action. He never expected Jesus to actually yield and then go to the cross and die, which is why he was filled with regret and killed himself. That's my explanation for the whole thing. I might be wrong. But it doesn't really matter because in the end, he used the vulnerability and the offer of friendship as a lever instead of a treasure. 
He used Jesus instead of loving Jesus. Does that make Jesus foolish? For having extended the love to begin with, not a chance. Expect to be hurt. Sometimes you're going to make bad choices. Sometimes people are not going to honor the gift that you give them. That doesn't mean you fail. doesn't mean you did something wrong. Just don't reject the love and don't internalize the shame. So we need to be careful in how we commit. We need to be careful in who we're relating to. But we do actually need to commit, you guys. We need to actually commit. There needs to come a point where we're like, man, something is triggering in me. I have some people in my life, they are covenant friends. I didn't even know that language existed before, but they are covenant friends. They were people that I would at any moment drop everything to go care for them. I would walk away. I would be there. I did. And I've had people like that for me. They were covenant friends. We actually have to commit. Listen, your disposable view of friendship wounds the most vulnerable in our community. Just because your relational needs are met, whether it's in marriage or family, and and you see your friends as disposable and you move on and you don't honor the commitments that were previously made, you are wounding the most vulnerable in our community. Singles who have watched their friends get engaged and get married and their friendship circle shrinks and shrinks and shrinks as more and more people basically find their friendship disposable and leave them behind. Divorced, people who already shrank their circle of friendship uh, when they got married and started having a family and then they got divorced and they found that they were now isolated in that condition. People that are struggling with with same-sex attraction, and they believe that God is calling them to celibacy and not to act out on those desires, and and, and so they're they're, they're trying to do Christian community without romance because they believe that they are limited, and they find their friends getting married and moving off and starting families, and their social circle is shrinking and shrinking, and fewer and fewer people are committed to them and loving them and knowing them and relating to them. The people who are most vulnerable in our community are the ones who suffer the most when we will not see friendship love as a commitment love. Wesley Hill is a a guy who um, uh, struggles with same-sex attraction, uh, is a Christian, wrote a number of books just talking about his struggle with what it means to be a follower of Christ when he has the deep conviction that God is telling him not to act out on those sexual urges. He wrote a book called Spiritual Friendship, and he said this, and it describes this, this just powerfully. He says, being platonically dumped wouldn't be so bad if people would acknowledge that you have the right to be platonically heartbroken. But it's just not part of our vocabulary. However much our society might pay lip service to friendship, the fact remains that the only love it considers important, the only one important enough to merit a huge public celebration, is romantic love. We defraud the most vulnerable in our community when we refuse to see friendship as commitment. All right, wrapping up. Friendship love needs to be secondary. Friendship love needs to be secondary. Just to remind you, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Friendship love is essential for our spiritual growth, but it isn't primary. We are loved by God, and it's in that place of being loved by God that we learn to love others. 
Listen to me. If you don't have a vibrant relationship with God through the message of the gospel, if you are not connected to the grace of God in your relationship, what ends up happening is you're going to put God weight on your friendships. And you'll destroy your friendships. Because your friends cannot be for you what God can be. They cannot do for you what God can do. You need to find your ultimate security, ultimate joy, ultimate intimacy in your relationship with God through, the extent, through, through, through God extending friendship to you through the work and person of Christ. And it's from that place of being fed that you can then move out and grow in your relationship with others. Now, because it's secondary, it doesn't make it less important because you can't grow in your experience and knowledge and love of God unless you're growing in your experience and love of others but it does mean that it needs to stay secondary. Your primary relationship is with God and the friendship extended to you in Christ. And the result, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. Guys, if we don't push into this, we're defrauding ourselves. If we don't try to figure this out, we're the ones who are impoverished. So let's grow. All right, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, we're going to move into time of response. We'll share communion in a moment, but let me pray for us first. Father, I thank you for the incredible gift of friendship that you have extended to us. Man, your affection, your delight. <laughs> Not just your acceptance. You haven't just washed away our, our sins and declared us pardoned. <laughs> You have then declared us friends. Lord, I pray. I pray for my friends that right now are in uh, difficult relationships. They have people they've invited in to their car, to their friendship circle that, that honestly are abusive and don't belong there. I pray, Lord, that you give them clarity on on how to love them, but to make the choices and the steps necessary to not allow someone to abuse the gift of their vulnerability. There are others, Lord, that need to desperately invite people into that circle, but they're afraid to because they've been hurt and wounded. I pray, Spirit, that you would give them the courage and the desire to lay down their armor and to set down their sword to invite people in, knowing, Lord, that their ultimate security doesn't come from the people they invite in, but from you. The strength that they need comes first in their deep love experience with you, and then from that they find the courage to push out. I pray for my friends that have defrauded others of their friendship because of busyness or selfishness. that you would weigh on their hearts that they might value the friends that you've placed in their life, that they are to love well. Lord, just help us to be countercultural in this area, to grow in ways that are freeing and liberating and life-giving, that we might honor you and celebrate your son. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.